0: Good morning everyone.
1: Are we we're a little hot on the mic today, are How do we sound now? Good in the night? Okay, great. Alright, good morning. Welcome to uh, my last session of our Church History 1 course. Um, You guys have all been wonderful. And this session, since we have come to our sort of the climax of uh, early church history in the Council of Chalcedon in the mid mid 5th century, uh, for my last session now, I'm going to change up the format a little bit. I'm going to give you sort of three sneak previews of what's going on in the Middle Ages, uh, these are going to be less focused on events than they are on general trends um, in late antiquity leading into the, the church of the Middle Ages, Something, some idea, large ideas that will give you a sense of how the medieval church is distinct from the ancient church. Um, I'm going to do that in a relatively quick pace, um, and then for the second half of the course I would like to open it up to questions questions about anything that um, we've talked about so far this semester. So keep if there's any questions you thought you missed in the, in the last few weeks um, or months and would like to get them out now, um, today will be the day to do it. So I've entitled this Medieval Trajectories 451 to Circa 750. This really covers the however you want to mark that transition between the ancient world and the medieval world. It comes somewhere in about this 300 year period. And three areas that I want to focus on um, are what I've entitled as, number one, the confusion of church and state, um, which is not so much that everyone's confused about what's going on here, but that these two, their spheres of influence are overlapping in this period, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. Uh, number two is the importance of the tangible holy. And it was, it's tough to find a, a title for exactly what that means, but it is inclusive of both uh, living holy persons, um, both men and women living um, in some sort of um, place where they can be accessed by the general populace uh, for the performance of miracles, for advice, things like that, and also uh, relics. Relics are, in this period, a technical term for actual, um, really, pieces of bodies of saints. Bones, Mm. hair, teeth, things that are left over, the physical remains of people who were holy, and whose remains, in fact, in the, the mind of the populace of uh, the, the Christian masses, retained some, part, some portion of that holiness. And then the last trend that I'd like to talk about is a geographical one, is the shift northwards, the transition from a Mediterranean-centered Christian world into a European-centered one, um, at least as far as the uh, Western uh, culture, Western Latin culture of which we are the most direct heirs is concerned. So let's begin with the confusion of church and state. So in the 5th century, when we last left our Roman Empire um, in the mid, uh, in the 450's, the church was continuing to spread in the west throughout the western Roman provinces, which are today Spain, Portugal, France, um, England, not Scotland and Ireland. And bishops were being consecrated in nearly all the Roman territories at about almost the same time. Um, As you get further away from Rome, as the Roman legions were leaving and moving back, um, either simply disbanding or moving back uh, toward the Roman core provinces in Italy. And so the deposition of the uh, the last Roman emperor on record, Romulus Augustulus, in 476, was not the the huge psychological breaking point that, say, for example, the sack of Rome in 410 was, that we talked about a few, few weeks ago in the context of Augustine's uh, *The City of God*. See, barbarians had been in the um, Roman empires in the highest levels of the Roman legion. Um, They've been uh, military leaders for some decades before the final Roman emperor was deposed, and the last Roman emperors were often mere puppets. Uh, Romulus Augustulus was about ten years old. Um, he ruled in name only, and they to tell you how little power he had. They didn't even have to kill him. Um, Odoacer, the Ostrogothic general who uh, took over power, simply said, "Okay, Romulus, it's time for you to head off to a monastery, which is where people who might potentially pose a, um, a, a political threat, but not really, gotta get to go. And I'm going to call myself now king of Italy. And so we moved from having emperors in the Roman West um, to kings of Italy. And but this really, for the Roman populace at this time, this was." Not that it's a huge psychological break. The, these Ostrogoths had been walking around for some time. They had been, been learning Latin, taking on um, the the names of the traditional Roman offices, and essentially Olazar putting Romulus Augustus in a monastery kind of formalized what had been going on for um, at least a generation before him. And for a time, these different barbarian groups. Uh, You have Ostrogoths in Italy, you have Visigoths in Spain, Burgundians and Franks in what is now um, modern France, benefited from the Roman infrastructure. So Roman civilization had been in Western Europe for, uh, depending on what part of Western Europe you're in, for as much as four or 500 years. Um, And they had developed a system of Civic centers. That it was, as we've talked about, it was less developed and less populated than in the east. But nevertheless, it was there. Um, administrative centers where Roman officials and governors could be sent out from the center, from Rome or from Italy, and they could collect taxes, enforce laws. They could appoint judges. Uh, there were um, military cohorts that were attached to the political offices throughout the Western Empire. And for a short amount of time, um, maybe you know, a century, depending on where you are in the former Western Roman Empire, the barbarian kingdoms were able to benefit from this infrastructure. They could simply install themselves on top, say we're in charge now, and tax collectors go on collecting your taxes, farmers go on farming, um, and we'll simply provide the military (coughs) and things will be just like they were. But this is something that uh, can only last for a short amount of time. Uh, To to take over someone else's um, administrative structure on a smaller scale and then not to innovate with it um, is going to, you're going to run out of sort of um, cultural capital in a relatively short period of time. And so, one example though that you can see of sort of a post-Roman a, um, continuation of Roman themes and even Roman building is that Theodoric, the king of the Ostrogoths after Odoacer, the second one after the last Roman emperor, um, builds a magnificent church palace in Ravenna, um, and he decorates it with uh, Christian artwork. Most of these Christian, most of these barbarian tribes in the Western Empire, very quickly became Christians. Um, granted, most of them became Arian Christians, but um, within a few generations after that, most of those converted to Roman Catholicism. So this is a uh, an instance of the um, conquerors being in turn transformed by the peoples that they conquered. See the the Western barbarians; they would come over the Rhine, come over the Danube, down into Roman lands. And their goal was not to make Roman territory into their own tribal lands. What they wanted to do (coughs) was take the things that they saw from Roman culture and appropriate them for themselves. So they took on Roman titles, sometimes even Roman-sounding names, learned to speak Latin, uh, converted to Christianity. But over time, the, the political fragmentation that they've introduced, there's no... Equivalent of a Western Roman emperor among the barbarian kings is uh, going to have irrevocable social consequences. Communications break down. The monetary system nearly disappears. Uh, violence becomes endemic between these different groups. The Burgundians are fighting the Ostrogoths. Are fighting the Franks. Are fighting the Visigoths. And the church uh, is the only organization that remains. Uh, on an international scale. You now have... International is a a word that we're kind of importing into this period. There's not really a sense of distinct um, concrete nation-states that we'll have in the emerging, the later medieval period, but it's a useful contrast with the sort of imperial uniformity. Um, You have different groups that are... they have their... they have distinct original languages, um, and they have very distinct practices, and uh, most importantly, they have a fragmented political culture, and the only thing that is holding everyone together, which in their sort of former Roman identity, um, at least as an organization, is the church itself. But the church kind of main t- is affected by the fact that um, this the same political disintegration means that uh, the church itself, though it is international, is not able to maintain communications in the same way that it was in the 4th century. It is not able to um, accrue wealth on the same scale that it had been when it was um, within the Roman Empire. So it's suffering some of the same um, fragmentation and disintegration that you're seeing in the political structures as well. In this period, uh, Roman aristocrats are looking to the church organization as a way of preserving links to their own past. So people like Caesarius of Av, and the Vitus of Vienne, these are um, cities in France, they became bishops um, and they took on the roles and also the powers to some extent of secular civic leaders. So, where powerful Roman aristocrats in the third and fourth centuries would look toward a senatorial career, uh, a secular uh, place of leadership, they're now looking toward the um, office of bishop as a way of. Uh, maintaining some kind of civic control over the surrounding areas. Um, it's not so much that they're they're being power hungry in this um, in this thought process as that they're the it's the only way of expressing um, a, a sort of link to the way things were done in Roman times is to go ahead and become a bishop to become the most powerful, the educated, wealthy person in a particular city or town, and to make sure that ordinary life continues on, um, that there's some sense of the enforcement of laws, um, collection of taxes and things like that, the things that we take for granted in putting together a, um, a coherent civilization. So, you, you can see the offices of the church being pulled into government directly in a way that they weren't when there was a stable, um, whether it was pagan or Christian, Roman government. Overarching. Um, churches, bishops could focus more specifically on their congregations, whereas now their congregations are um, widened to include the all, most of the trappings of civic government. At the same time, monasteries are becoming one of the places where wealth is still accruing. Um, monasteries as a whole have, Benedictine monasteries as we talked about a few weeks ago, have a good structure for um, accruing capital wealth. They have a, a very good work, work ethic, and so over generations, um, groups of able-bodied single men um, with a very diligent work ethic can farm a great deal and accrue wealth. In addition to the fact that monasteries were the natural um, repositories uh, for people who have um, legacies that they want to commit to the church, they'll simply, um, if they have no children or even if they have children, they'll give part of their wealth to their children and part of it to the monastery. So within a few generations, monasteries are becoming quite wealthy. Um, And this is another reason, uh, one of the ways they become wealthy is that they are, um, people aren't necessarily giving them bags of gold, they're giving them fields and the rights to work these, these fields. And this puts the monasteries, um, and the, in, in an analogous way to the bishops, directly into the structures of government and of everyday secular life. They are now landlords for much of the area surrounding the monastery. And this will have profound consequences in Western Europe throughout the Middle Ages. So once government structures start to become more international again, they're, they're less, um, less tribal, less based on conquest and plunder, and more based on taxation and things like that, they're going to find that they have church leaders who are already stuck right in the mix. Church leaders in the modern equivalent of the position of senators and governors and mayors um, running things who have a very... Um, for whom it is very difficult to separate out their secular from their um, sacred duties. Um, and this is one of the reasons that that has come about, is that with the dissolution of an overarching political structure in this period. In the East, the story is different and, in some ways, a bit of uh, the opposite. Um, in the East, powerful Christian emperors continue to reign. Um, the east being everything east of Italy or, um, and including on the North African coast, Egypt. Um, and so the, whole, uh, the modern Holy Land, um, Asia Minor, all of these territories remain a coherent Roman structure. And in fact, the one uh, Eastern Roman Emperor named Justinian, who rules from 527 to 565, um, you know, almost 40 years, reconquers much of the Western Mediterranean, including all of Italy, between 535 and 555. And so it looks like the the Eastern Empire is on the march, um, that this is sort of a hiccup in Roman history, and that the territories are on their way back toward becoming uh, a unified Roman state. However, these conquests prove to be very short-lived, and within a dozen years after Justinian completes his conquest of um, the king of Italy, of Theodoric's kingdom of Italy, um, a new group called the Lombards invades from the north and takes over most of it, and this plan of reconquest essentially comes to nothing. Um, Justinian's empires uh, attacked again from the East and he had few resources to deal with the West and so in some ways uh, one of the things that Justinian's reconquest managed to do was actually widen the gap between the former Western provinces and the remaining Eastern Empire. The Westerners who were being invaded by Greek-speaking troops thought, well, you know, we were doing pretty well under the Ostrogoths, and now everything's being destroyed. 20 years of endemic warfare has actually destroyed our economy. We had some, we had some, you know, leftover kind of structures of Roman government, and now, over this 20 years of reconquest in Italy, most many of these buildings are destroyed. These uh, links of communication have been uh, degraded even further. Um, thanks a lot, Justinian, but no thanks. Um, so, um, the. The, the East and West begin to, to fall ever further apart from one another. Um, Westerners no longer learn Greek. Um, people in the Greek-speaking uh, empire very rarely learn Latin, and the, the two sides of the empire tend to go um, more their separate ways in this period. Even though there's the, the formal schism that occurred in the late 5th century was healed in the early 6th century, and there won't be in uh, the, the final, lasting schism that we're still dealing with today until the 11th century, for all intents and purposes, these two sides of Christendom have very little to say to one another. There are ambassadors that go back and forth um, in sort of the usual um, apparatus of states for uh, throughout the period, but they, it's very much going into foreign lands for them. And in this side of the empire, um, it's in, instead of having weak or ineffectual and finally no emperor, you continue to have very strong emperors who uh, keep a very strong hand on top of the, um, what's going on in the church in the East. And so there will continue to be ecumenical councils um, in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries. Um, and these councils say very important things, working out some of the, the sort of unfinished business of Chalcedon. But these councils, it's also very easy to see, um, or very hard not to see, the strong hands of imperial politics and what's going on. This isn't to say that there are, uh, that orthodox theology is not being debated seriously, but um, at least in Western eyes, like if when the popes are looking at these councils, they they have some severe criticisms of what's going on um, in the political side of things, and uh, popes start to say, well, you know, we're we're out here in the West, we have no political authority over us, and this gives us this adds to our um, another plank to that. Um, platform that I was talking about of folks saying, this is these are some of the reasons why we should be the preeminent authority. And one of them is because we don't have an emperor bringing down our necks and saying, here's how things need to go. So, these are some of the things that are going on in the, the confusion of church and state. In the West, um, church leaders are actually taking over the apparatus of government. In the East, church leaders um, have a, a Christian government which is making increasingly strong claims about its divine right to govern and are being, um, are having to deal with uh, a, a secular government which is itself mixing politics with um, with faith. So politics, church and state are being confused but in different ways in the East and the West. So that's one trajectory I want to talk about. Yeah, Tolliver. Yeah, I was wondering just
0: from a modern uh, perspective, uh, at least in regards to uh, uh, the East, mm-hmm. Would we see that like, let's say, the Russian Orthodox, uh, like this, there's such a tie-in with the state? you know, is that a, a carryover of even what happened
1: back then? Uh, to a certain extent. Th- that's a long and complicated story of the Russian um, um, side of things, with which I'm much less familiar. but there's much more of a pattern of national churches in the East. So there's a, a, a Greek Orthodox Church then there comes to be a Serbian Orthodox, a Russian Orthodox, a Syrian Orthodox Church. Um, and they have um, often stronger ties with the government than they do in the West. Although in lands that become Muslim, that's very different. Um, so in the 7th century, um, particularly in the uh, um, Syrian um, Jerusalem churches, Egyptian churches, it, in some ways the church goes back to a State prior to the conversion of the Roman Empire, where um, the state apparatus above them is not exactly hostile. And in fact, you, you were better off being a Christian under Muslim rule most of the time than you were being uh, a Christian under pagan Roman rule. But you have, again, a, a, a disconnect um, between the government and the, the church uh, under Muslim rule that you don't have um, in the, the former. Eastern Empire, uh, or in the Eastern Empire, or in the former Western Empire. Yeah, Emily. very um, So, what was, like, the voice of orthodoxy?
0: I mean, you have the medical council, that you mentioned that they weren't really, maybe, later in history regarding, so, uh, but I guess at the time, there's there all these monasteries, so, like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where was, like, do you know what
1: I mean? Like, what right. It was? Um, the saying. The it becomes a more complicated question where the locus of orthodoxy is one of one way to, to look at orthodoxy is that people are starting to look at the period that we've just been teaching as a whole um, the ecumenical councils in particular the first four in particular as being authoritative and so people are looking back you have you know you have canonized scripture you have um, uh, authoritative interpretations of the, in the councils and people are um, and you have the transmission of at least that body of knowledge. This is not a, a completely dark period where people are forgetting everything that's gone on before. And so those... Church history now becomes more self-referential. There's um, the, the, the Apostolic Age itself, and then there's um, the, the authoritative interpretations that the people are looking back to constantly. So when um, new, new questions come up about Orthodoxy, um, this is one of the ways that they'll be handled. One of the interesting things is that, actually, there are relatively few questions about Orthodoxy in the Western Empire for some time. Um, through most of this period after Chalcedon and up until, really, even the 12th century, there are relatively few um, major, major sort of um, internationally known questions uh, about, um, about heresy. That doesn't come up to be a big thing for a while. In the East, that's very different. Um, Christological divisions go on, um, very serious uh, Christological debates go on for some time, which is what these councils um, that I've mentioned these last three of the southern Mechanical councils are about. Um, and the West also does, uh, after uh, some time, come to accept the findings of those three councils in particular, um, the, first the papacy and then the um, the, the surrounding Western districts. so. Yeah, so people are looking more back at their own church history to say, this is how we're going to settle questions of what orthodoxy is. Yeah. What place did the
0: the, uh, Holy Land have in the church in the West? with this rich? Were they still able to make any pilgrimages? Or did they?
1: Um, Yes, pilgrimages uh, were still going on. There was... In this period, there was less of a very strong emphasis on that, um, and in practical terms, relatively few people could go. Um, It was more difficult to get from France to the Holy Land now than it was in the 3rd or 4th century. Um, So that becomes less of a serious issue. Uh, It will become much more of an issue in the run-up to the Crusades um, later on in the medieval period, but that's a little outside of um, what we're talking about today. So let's move on to the second area of um, medieval trajectories, which is the importance of the tangible holy. So we talked about the rise of monasticism uh, about a month and a half ago and this was um, at least in its earliest phases, um, mostly men and sometimes women um, moving out to the desert, giving away all of their possessions and devoting themselves to um, a life lived in constant communing with God in a, a place, in a position of kind of holy poverty. And one of the things that we see in late antiquity, particularly in the fourth to the, to the um, seventh centuries, is that these, these people, um, both the living ones who uh, can actually speak and interact um, with people making pilgr- pilgrimages out to them, and the, uh, the remains of holy people, particularly of martyrs from earlier periods, are being imbued with a sense that... The real objects right here are kind of a, are kind of dynamos of the Holy. They're almost like, you know, um, you know think of any of those sort of science fiction pictures of that ball. It's kind of sparks of lightning coming off of it. They, these are places where you can go and actually encounter um, the Holy in a real and localized way. And it's it's very... It's very foreign to our modern sensibilities, um, and a little bit difficult of a mind frame to inhabit. But, um, the people would go to a man like Simon Stylites, somebody who lived for 40 years on top of a pillar, um, it's 20, 40 feet up in the air, or 20 feet up in the air, would never come down, would have food, you know, raised up to him on a basket. And, they would listen to what he said and you know they might bring legal disputes to him and say um, my neighbor and I have this dispute and we will consider your arbitration binding. They will give, they give him over legal authority and sometimes even more powerful people, local aristocrats, would come by and just do the same. They become a voice of authority outside. They're considered to be impartial and outside of the everyday um, conflicts of life and in a society where the um, the authority of government is starting to break down um, and you can see how you have need of people who are um, out, seem to be impartial outside of the, the everyday run of life. And a similar thing goes on with the with relics. And when you have uh, the finger bone of the saints put into a very ornate box and put at the altar of a church and it's brought out on very solemn occasions, um, and people are told, well, if you want to swear an oath, and you want us to believe you? We want you to swear this oath over the box of the relics. And in fact, we have records of people who knew that they could not swear truthfully, simply refusing to swear and admitting their guilt. Um, in you know, uh, for example, when um, when the the papacy really starts to crack down on simony, on the what what comes to be known as the sin of uh, buying a clerical office. Um, uh, this comes in a little bit outside of our period, but. Uh, when, when Bishop brings out the, re- the relics of a particular saint and says, okay, all of you bishops here, I want everyone to swear on the, this this uh, box of relics that you did not buy your office. And something like 70% of the bishops present would not swear. There was a real fear um, that the, that bearing false witness over this particular object or set of objects would be something that boundary to people would not be willing to transgress. And so Saints, both living and dead, become arbiters of um, a kind of universal standard that the secular government is no longer able to enforce. So Pauline language has given away, by late antiquity and early Middle uh, Ages, Pauline language of the sainthood of all believers has given away to uh, uh, the idea that saints are of a particular class of people. Uh, Saints um, both living and dead are able to intercede on behalf of the ordinary mass of Christians, with God. Now, in one sense, this this comes from a sort of admirable sense of humility. Um, mm-hmm. The average, average person saying, I'm, I'm not worthy to interact directly with the divine. I'm not powerful enough to interact directly with the divine. I would be simply consumed by it, and I need to find someone who can work in my favor. <laughs> and this class of people, the, this, this class of the saints, becomes that intermediary. Now, obviously, um, we have some very um, serious theological problems with that um, that are coming up, um, particularly uh, by the Reformation when this system has been entrenched and becomes open to all kinds of abuses. But this is where it's coming to coming to the fore, is in this period. Um, it's where it's um, being put together. And one thing that will help help us in the modern world understand this is that in the Roman world this is how business was done. Now think about, we have some analogy, analogy to this in the modern world when you say it's not what you do in your career, it's who you know, and imagine multiplying that by a factor of 10 and making it uh, institutional in the Roman Empire. It's not what you do, it's who is your patron, who is the person that is working on your behalf. The word patron comes from the Latin word for father, and so it's somebody who is above you in a position of paternal authority, so you are the average person who has a, a suit in the civic court you don't approach the Roman governor on your own. He doesn't have, you know, an open-door policy where you can go to his office and say, here, I'm going to present my case. What you do is you find a local aristocrat who has connections with the governor and influence. You give that person your case, the local aristocrat takes it to the Roman governor. And so the the saints are fulfilling this exact sociological role, but vis-a-vis the divine, um, as well as vis-a-vis the Um, secular authorities, in terms of enforcing um, binding arbitration on disputes and enforcing the efficacy of oaths being sworn. And so, you have, um, in some ways, a a transmutation and perpetuation of uh, Roman governmental norms um, taking on a a theological characteristic and becoming uh, an integral part of medieval society. Um, And this is where it's getting started, is the the late ancient and early medieval period.
0: Yeah. It seems like described saints though, that if people were using saints as a, as a conduit in the way that we would look to like like a like a pastor or like sort of office. Why would they Why would they look to saints instead of like the
1: head of their local church? That's a good question. And sometimes they would. I mean, you can. I mean, the bishop would also have um, legitimate uh, political authority. But this is another, um, in some ways, even, we've noticed that the bishops, from, as we see from section one, are becoming very much involved in local politics, and the saints are seen as being transcendent powers that um, are going to be something that even bishops can appeal to and say, now look, the um, the, the the miracles of St. Martin of Tours have, you know, convinced me that this particular Policy is the way to go, and they can lend authority to their to authority to their own um, uh, ways of uh, conducting their office. So, it's not that there are no living and appointed pastoral figures. I mean, they're, they're clearly there's a very uh, emerging, very um, powerful ecclesiastical structure, but the. The whole, the the saints are working in parallel with that um, and interacting with that that church structure um, over against the disappearing Roman imperial structure of uh, magistrates being sent out throughout the city uh, throughout the the western provinces to to administer law. So it's you have chieftains, milit- the people of the military power. You have the bishops who are taking on sort of the um The power of the nobility, and then you have um the, this class of saints, which takes on a little bit of little bit from lots of different categories. it 's very difficult to put them in one place and say that saints now equal the roman patron i mean i don 't want to go that far um there there's much more of um a, a theological distinction going on I mean your Roman patron was never understood to be um, a moral authority in the same way that the saints are, but uh they're 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 filling out new power structures, which have analogies to what's going on in the ancient world, but of course are, are different, and they're also very different from us, and so in that sense it's, it's difficult to put them in our own categories.
0: Yeah? I find this to be actually the most intriguing things you've discussed. Um, I'm just thinking, that, well, who is it, Alexis Meadings, the anthropologist, I can't remember his name, but you know, anthropologists have observed how every civilization has wanted to locate divine presence in their, in their locale, in their material reality. So there's this place, you mentioned place, mm-hmm. this tangible material place or something, object, where the divine sort of breaks in, and yet unscathed, unstained mm-hmm. by the world. And it strikes me that really, you know, of course, the Reformation, Claire wants to clarify that and say there's nothing wrong with that, that passion. There's nothing wrong with that desire. So before we... And I think you're presenting it very well. Before we sort of castigate these guys, but "We're a bunch of lunatics doing this stuff." They're doing exactly what they should do, except we would argue that's what the sacraments are. You know, that's what the, that's what we're we're wanting and where we're looking when we. But there's something. It's just intriguing me. There's something about the human spirit that wants so desperately a mediatorial presence of the, the divine, and it strikes me the relics are just a an expression of that, do you think, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that sort of, and even anthropologists, you know, they've looked at all kinds of civilizations, you know, they call the Axis Mundi, but is this the place?
1: Yeah, I mean, within the classical culture, there were um, loci of the holy, um, oracles, and <coughs> um, uh, temples, and places where the divine was uh, meeting with the human. So, well,
0: it really just seems to be an expression of that temple, Theology, almost, uh, there, even though it's not a temple per se, but looking for presence, looking for divine intermediary.
1: Yeah, I, I think yeah, it, it, as far as that goes, yes. I mean, there are lots of you know different historical institutions and trends that are coming together to um, to make this this new Christian way of doing things. And it's not simply a you know Christian whitewashing over pagan institutions, but I think you're, what you're pointing to is sort of a little bit. A deeper human need, and I think that that's fair um, to to um, unite these different historical periods in in something that's rooted in uh, human nature more broadly.
0: It's interesting that how critics of Christendom would, would say exactly what you just stated there: is that they've just they've just borrowed from these other you know pagan religions, whatever, uh, like you said, whitewashed over it mm-hmm. and make it fit for them to gain a place of power. It's interesting how it, the indictment of co-opting. Right.
1: You know I mean? Yeah, there are... It's funny. One of the, you know, sort of Da Vinci Code kind of thing to do is to say, oh look, these things in Christianity that you thought were unique to Jesus' message and to, to your, your revelation have analogies in the past and therefore there's nothing new there. There's nothing um, unique about what you're saying. The the other way, the other extreme on that um, in some um, circles of Christianity is to say absolutely everything about the Christian message has no analogy to anything before it and is completely and totally new, when in fact what we're seeing is that this is divine revelation being mediated through human actors and so we should expect that the new is going to have resonances with the old and, and you know, as even going back to um, this sort of, mont- you know, and um, some of the early uh, Marcionites' debates about what is the relationship of Christianity to its Jewish past. We know that um, this is a God who acts in history and there, uh, that we should only expect that the most important revelations, um, the revelation of Christ, is going to have resonances with um, the rest of the human experience. So, um, to To go too far in either of those directions, deciding that Christianity is totally new or simply the old rehashed over again, is to miss a a central message of Scripture and Christian tradition itself. And we can see when we look from the historical period to the next period to the next, um, and we see themes that come back over and over again, and yet maintain a a continuing um, newness of uh, Christian revelation
0: you could argue the search for divine presence goes back, it's God's fault. He made us in the image of God in the creation order mm-hmm. to have a presence. And so that's your point. Yeah. And Moses doesn't, when he writes his gospel, he doesn't write and say, you guys are all screwed up, you pagans, for wanting what you want. He, mm-hmm. he says, you're just looking for wrong place."
1: And what's important about the kind of argument that you're making there, um, that I'm trying to make here, is that these are not arguments that I've come to from being an historian, that I can look at the sweep of history and say, that's how that's how it must work. These are the arguments that I make in order to study history. These are the arguments um, that one has to come to. And so when when historians, on the basis of the data that they, they crunch day in and day out, um, make these claims and say, no, this is I'm looking at it in here in these pieces of data that I put together, um, what they're really making are theological and philosophical claims that are the basis for doing Historical work, as opposed to fruits of historical labor, one can't look at the historical data objectively and then mm-hmm. see truth emerge from it. That's um, it's, uh, that? it's such an important uh, methodological distinction, which I've, I'm trying to maintain here as I do um, sort of the historical side of um, a course that is intended to. Take real account of both the historical and the theological, the ideological side of, of what's going on in the early Christian communities.
0: Do, do, you, do you see that, that that debate taking place within historical circles that you know kind of questioning these? You know, what are the foundational assumptions that every story is bringing to the data?
1: Oh, very much so. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, you have uh, an older model of historiography, sort of a 19th century one that I've been talking about, where it is a, a sense that um, history is really a science. And if you just put, if you line up things with the appropriate methodology all together, truth will emerge um, in the same way that, um, and even, you know, in the, in the hard sciences, which is not fair, but in the same way that E, MC, e equals MC squared is, is testable and evident um, bit of truth. But um, and then there's people going the opposite direction in the very modern academy saying that, you know, all, all truths are going to be relative and we can only look at what, at a particular period and particular group, narrow that down to itself and look at it on its own terms and not try and relate it to others. Um, and then other people have said, in fact, that, you know, they're looking, they're looking at the data as a whole, proves that, you know, no one religious tradition can have any other, um, can have any, any, any priority over another one. So people are coming at this from all uh, different directions within the discipline of, of history. Uh, How do you guys ever have a
0: conversation <laughs> uh, it, it,
1: The conversation about what history is, is very difficult. The narrower the topic, the easier it is to have coherent conversations, but to um, so, for example, you know, some people who do biblical history in the academy, um, or history as a whole, but this, you know, this is where the conflict comes up, work by something called the principle of analogy. They say, we have no concrete scientific proof that miracles occur in the modern world, and we have no rules by which we can say what a miracle is, uh, or it's not, within sort of an empirical understanding. Therefore, we cannot say that in the ancient world that would have held any more truth than it does now. Therefore, I'm going to treat biblical history as being non-miraculous. And anything that records any record of a miracle, anywhere in biblical history, is simply out the door. It has to have a psychological or sociological explanation. It has to be explained away before it can be incorporated into a philosophy or a theology of what history means um, and, you know, what it means to be human and to interact with the divine. Can't Mean what these people are saying. It means if that's dependent upon miraculous intervention of God, and so that at that point that that conversation is just out the window. You can't you can't have that conversation with people who've adopted that methodology before they start looking at the historical texts. So someone who says that when the apostles thought Jesus was walking on water, he was really walking in really shallow water during a fog at the edge of the lake. You, you're not going to get them. Just saying that it was a miracle by by looking at the text, they have already decided what readings of the text are legitimate, and so that, that that does encounter that does bring up some problems <laughs> within the academy. But um, moving away from that, moving it you know um, into sort of taking, when you talk about well, when in the early Christian community they believe this, and you know you're your secular. Person in the academy would say, "Well, yes, they did believe this. Now let's talk about what that meant for them um, in the later communities. You can have very fruitful conversations about that." So let's move on to the last, last uh, major trend that I want to talk about, which is the it's a geographical one: the shift northwards. So, some of the things that have been going on uh, that we talked about earlier, unease between Eastern and Western halves of Christendom, um, this, you know, the, the growing disconnect between Latin and Greek culture, the um, reconquest of Italy and the destruction that that brought, lead to a breakdown in communication between the East and the West. And the explosion of Islam into the Levant, the Levant is the, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, um, and the North African coast. These. Tensions bring about a permanent um, fracturing in the unity of the Mediterranean. So the Mediterranean had been a conduit. Um, as much as it divides um, land masses from one another in certain seasons of the year, it's very difficult to sail from one to another. Um, it was also a, an avenue for um, communication throughout the lands that are tied around the Mediterranean, all the way around three sides of it. And for really most of classical antiquity, um, there were, and for all of the Roman imperial period, this had been a Roman lake, was, was the phrase Mare Nostrum, our, our sea, and it facilitated communication, trade, um, cultural diffusion, the diffusion of Latin and Greek language throughout the Mediterranean, far outside of the historical centers of their development. And this unity is broken now in the late antiquity, and it won't be put to back together through the Middle Ages. And so, at the same time as this, you have the old Roman frontiers to the north, the Danube and Rhine rivers, um, the North Sea, um, or the Irish Sea cutting off England from Ireland, and the um, Hadrian's Wall in the extreme north cutting off Scotland from England. These barriers, though they have remained political barriers to Roman authority throughout the Roman period, um, were no barriers to Christianity, and Christianity continues to move north and um, into the northeast of Europe beyond the Roman frontiers, at the same time that its expansion eastward into Asia and southward into Africa has been cut off, um, for the most part, by Islam. And so this leads to a refocusing of the geographic area of Christianity from a mediterranean centered religion to, what, to the area that we now know of as Europe, particularly of Western Europe. So, in, the in 496, Clovis, um, is the leader of the Franks, becomes the, the first of the major barbarian tribes to convert to Catholic Christianity, away from Aryan Christianity. Um, Patrick's efforts in Ireland lead to the conversion of that nation. This is the first nation, the first major group of people outside of the Roman borders in Western Europe to become Christians. Um, you've had other, other non-Roman peoples. Uh, Armenia became Christian before this, and Ethiopia became Christian before that, but Islam effectively cuts these areas of Christianity off um, from the um, sort of central, what we've come to think of as the, the central areas of Christianity um, in Western Europe. And the uh, conversions of many of the Germanic tribes in the 6th to the 8th centuries that had never been part of the Roman Empire um, are going on by this period. And they are mission, missionary efforts are being um, put out into these new areas a, as a cooperative between the papacy and between the Franks for uh, for the most part. And also um, missionaries are being sent out by the Irish themselves. So from the extreme north back onto the continent. And you have a um, an expansion of Christianity and a sort of a movement, a cultural movement of these groups into a Roman-based transmission of Christianity. So these groups, when they take on Christianity, they start to speak Latin because Latin is the language of the Christian liturgy and the language of the Christian clergy that have come to uh, teach them about Christianity. Um, The acceptance of Christian faith in the early medieval period starts to take on the flavor of the movement of a people group from a sort of what we would call a third world to a first world status. Um, it becomes the the, the the dynamic, the missionary dynamic is very much enmeshed in um, political concerns. They're often top-down um, conversions where a leader decides that my tribes will now be Christian and baptisms are um, conducted by thousands um, in the Rhine and other major rivers in Europe. And so this is not to say that the Christian method message is being lost. Um, we like to compare these kinds of top-down conversions with the early conversions in the Roman Empire, which were sort of bottom-up, um, grassroots, um, community-based, um, family-based, sort of um, conversion experience, and say that, well, these these Christians converted when it was a bad idea for them to do so, and Christians in Western Europe in late antiquity and early middle ages converted when it was a good idea for them to do so, politically favorable. Um, And so we can't ignore that possibility, but neither do I want to make it the whole story and say that um, these are simply, you know, uh, political conversions of Western Europe. But the important sort of takeaway point from that is that the shift of the the Christian world has moved away permanently um, from being centered around the coast of the Mediterranean to being centered in the Western Europe that we think of um, as being the center of medieval Christianity and early modern Christianity and eventually sending it out to the globe um, in the age of exploration. And we can see this in a permanent or very tangible way by uh, the 8th century when the Carolingians, they're a dynasty of um, rulers of the Franks start to put together, for the first time since the dissolution of the Roman Empire, a large, supranational, um, political structure. And when they do it, their capital is going to be at all in northern France. It's not going to be at Rome, even though they have political, contr- political control over Rome. It's, um, the focus has been shifted, um, to a Western Europe that we recognize today. And that's also going on in this period, and this roughly is accomplished pretty much by 750. So Christianity, church and state, have become mixed in new ways. Um, the the holy has become tangible and local, and the center of gravity of Christianity has moved um, from the Mediterranean coasts and in some senses away from Rome for a while up to the north. Uh, Rome will start making some, um, some very strong claims about being the center of Christianity again in, in the later Middle Ages, but for this period, uh, that's, that's the way things are moving. And I'd like to close this section with one of my favorite uh, primary sources from this period that illustrates um, the last point in particular, uh, the geographic and cultural shift of Christianity away from a Roman Mediterranean culture to a um, northern European one. And this is taken from Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the, Ancient Pe- of the English people. Uh, Bede was a monk and scholar who lived uh, from the late 7th um, into the early 8th century. And he chronicles the missions sent by Pope Gregory the Great, um, uh, who, was, who lived about a century before him, uh, to the kingdoms of England. England at this time was a politically fractured era. Once the Roman legions had moved out, um, various tribes had invaded from um, different parts of northern Europe. And there was a patchwork of small kingdoms, and Gregory sent some of them still Christian Britons, some of them um, various pagan tribes, Anglo-Saxons, Jews, um, where we get the, the, the Anglo-Saxon um, uh, phraseology for, for England from. And this particular um, episode comes from a record by the missionary Paulinus, um, the man who becomes eventually the, the first bishop of York to King Edwin of Northumbria, so this is Northern England, um, in the early 7th century and um, Paulinus has been preaching to Edwin for some time and in 627 Edwin assembled his council to consider the message of Christianity and Bede records this speech um, made by an unnamed counselor um, within uh, Edwin's group of elders. Top weighing the merits of their pagan faith versus uh, the faith of Christianity. And here's what he has to say. Your Majesty, when we compare the present life of man on earth with that time of which we have no knowledge, it seems to me like the swift flight of a single sparrow through the banqueting hall where where you are sitting at dinner on a winter's day with your thanes and counselors. In the midst, there is a comforting fire to warm the hall. Outside, the storms of winter rain or snow are raging. This sparrow flies swiftly in through one door of the hall and out through another. While he is inside, he is safe from the winter storms. But after a few moments of comfort, he vanishes from sight into the wintry world from which he came. Even so, man on earth appears but for a little while. But of what went before this life, or of what follows, we know nothing. Therefore, if this new teaching has brought any more certain knowledge, it seems only right that we should follow it. So, the sunny world of classical antiquity has given away to a northern um, sense of the darkness and the hostility of nature um, from which Christianity is seen to be a refuge. Um, this is a very uh, different cultural context into which Christianity is moving and which it does and into which it moves very rapidly and the the people who come from this kind of a pagan background become the center of the new church um, people who have come from uh, a northern in uh, a Norse mythology um, which has a, a far darker view of the nature of um, existence in this world uh, have, are starting to latch on to Christianity as saying no this gives us a hope uh, that we've never had before and I've always been very moved uh, by this particular quotation, and it uh, shows you how far Christianity has gone and what kind of changes that it's going through in this period and what kinds of new peoples um, we think of in the modern world, we tend to, to look at Europe and say, ah, that's, that's where Christianity comes from. That's where so many things uh, that we take for granted about the faith uh, were born. But in fact, this is the period where um, Christianity has been around for over 500 years now. And it's just coming to these places, and they're adding their chapter to the story of Christianity, chapters which are influencing us today because the norms that were being put together by these people um, between the 7th and the 15th centuries are the norms of Christianity that are going to be exploded out onto the worldwide stage in the 16th century when European ships discover new continents and sail around the coast of Africa and into Asia. Uh, and this is going to be, in a very large part, the character of global Christianity. So these are some things to, to be thinking about um, in the transition from the, the ancient period of um, Christian faith and into the modern one. So we have a, a couple minutes for some questions. Yes? Now,
0: you say about the, the role of the Church in
1: the, well, the Celtic church in this particular time um, is uh, in a large part the the Irish church that we've been talking about. Uh, the first area outside of Roman political culture to be converted to Christianity in the West and uh, an area that very rapidly um, sent out a large mi- missionary force um, into Northern Europe, into the Germanic kingdoms that were still pagan. Um, and so became a major force also in um, the monastic movement. Uh, Irishmen would be moving to the continent and setting up new monasteries, um, as well as preaching to the general population of the new tribes that they're coming to. Um, they make a a, a a very intentional study of classical culture. It's not their culture, and they come to it as something foreign, and so they start to dig back into um, classical forms of Latin and preserving the the older manuscripts, um, and are very intentional about that. And when they form Monasteries on the continent, they continue to be intentional about that. So, um, Ireland and the Celtic Church there starts to play an important role with it. And when Ireland had been very much marginalized in the classical world.
0: Yeah? Um, question. First, thank you for that last comment. Um, I appreciate your heart you on that. It, um, again, you're reminding us just how much. People have taught in this faith, and how many, how much of what they have done is impacting us today? Which is the reason you're teaching us right now. And so I really appreciate your heart in that, and I hope we all think about that. I mean, there was a man making a case for Christ, you know, in a court, and uh, it just it's, it's endearing to me. My question, though, you just made reference to the 11th century and sort of the finalization of the schism between the East and the West. you just, even you know, it's beyond where you are, but. Um, what, what were you referencing? What happened
1: in the 11th century that made that final? Uh, in 1054, there was um, an embassy sent by the Roman papacy to Constantinople that went very badly. <coughs> and it's, we shouldn't put too much weight on the historical instantiation. So the Pope's legates excommunicated the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople. The Patriarch of Constantinople, in turn, excommunicated the Pope. And since then, they're f- back, at <laughs> <laughs> back at you. And so there, that's but what that did was that formalized many of these differences that we've been talking about. There were um, some differences in practice about um, how the Eucharist was to be conducted. There were there was a theological dispute uh, about the constant powers and creed that we've um, actually uh, that Junius has taught about earlier. There's um, the introduction of one small Latin phrase which the people in the Greek East say is unacceptable. Um, And there are the ever-increasing claims of the Papacy to universal authority, which the Patriarch in the East is not willing to grant. And so these long-standing differences boil out to the head in the 11th century. So it's a mutual here? It's a mutual thing, yeah. A
0: footnote <laughs> to that, um, most people don't know that that excommunication was actually rescinded at the Ecumenical Council at Lyon. That was, um, St. Bonaventure actually affected a, a union where they both, the Pope and the Patriarch had the excommunications, but Bonaventure was probably poisoned to death at that council. And, um, and so all of his work to bring them back together didn't
1: actually pay. Yeah, you have some, some other historical footnotes. We <laughs> are crazy. Yeah, we are crazy. And also, um, as the Byzantine Empire is on the wane, um, and it's contracting to the point where it's really just the city of Constantinople and a few small territories, the uh, emperors uh, and patriarchs get very desperate for help from anywhere, and they start Looking for help in the 14th and 15th centuries from the papacy, and two times um, they're willing to say, "Okay, you win. We'll become Catholics. Just please send us a navy um, to fight off the Turks." And um, it doesn't take either time. The, the populace of Constantinople um, doesn't isn't willing to have it, and also this um, makes the Russian Orthodox very angry, um, and they to, they take up, deliberately take up the mantle and say, we are now the preservers of apostolic orthodoxy. Um, Moscow is the third Rome, Constantinople is the second, we're the third. Um, and so these divisions carry on and this this division of, between the um, Roman papacy and the um, Russian Orthodox church has never been fully healed either. So they're, they're, it's that's the 1054 is not the end of the story, um, it's not sort of a one-off moment, but the, those divisions have never been have yet to be fully healed, even though the last two popes have made um, overtures in that direction. Yeah. Just making sure I'm
0: clear on it, you excommunicate
1: somebody, aren't you essentially saying you're going to help? That, the, the meaning of excommunication between um, what's going on in 1 Corinthians and what's going on by the high Middle Ages has gone through a few changes. I mean, the idea that, you know, to, 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 to cut someone off from the, the grace of the community in the hopes that that person will then return, um, and be you know, delivered up to Satan for a time, and then come back, seems very different from the language of the um, excommunications the are going on in the mid 13th century who say, you know, by authority vested in me as the vicar of St. Peter and the vicar of Christ, I am withdrawing Christ's grace from you, and until you get my forgiveness in this life, you are effectively damned.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: would it fair to say on, on the cringe of the spread of the Gospels where the pure essence of it is uh, propagated wherever whatever word you want to use rather than all, all the theological victory? And what's the lesson in that for us? As, as in this, this quote right here
1: the the pure gospel. Um, I, I'm sorry. Uh, could you clarify uh, uh, Rather than saying you believe in the wrong
0: God or you're going to hell or, or uh, you know you're Jewish and you don't believe the right thing, it's mm-hmm. just, you know that whole sort of I'm not phrasing it right.
1: But okay. Um, I think that there is a mix of um, mm-hmm. sincere and sort of politically derived motivations going on um, in the missionary endeavors of this period. Um, And there's a mix of sincere acceptance and sort of strategic political acceptance of Christianity going on. But I think that's been going on throughout church history. Um, I think that you can see that even in the New Testament. Um, Not every single person um, converted uh, in the apostolic age did so for the right reasons. Um, but I think that God works through imperfect vessels, and I think that there's no period at which um, people are always converting for the wrong reasons. There's no period at which we can say, "Oh, these these people, that they're not really a part of of who we are." We can look at their historical circumstances and say they did it for the wrong reasons, and they're out there. But these things are going on. I mean, people are giving sort of a simplistic um, answer to to Jews and to various pagans, and saying, "I mean, clearly everything that you, everything that you're about is wrong." But um, actually, within the Ecclesiastical History, he records um, many letters sent back and forth between um, Pope Gregory the Great and his missionaries. And there there are real, um, there, there are things you can learn from. These are not just, um, you know, historical artifacts. There's real pastoral concern that Gregory is showing um, and real cross-cultural understanding, uh, an understanding which I think um, many modern students of, um, religion are reluctant, if even unwilling, to attribute to the Middle Ages the belief that all, all people in the Middle Ages were just hopeless xenophobes who um, wanted to impose their cultures, culture as well as their faith on other groups. And In fact, Gregory has a very, displays a very nuanced understanding. Uh, these are where they're coming from. These are the kinds of things that keep them back from a Christian faith and here's how you need to formulate your questioning um, and start to, to bring them around to a worldview where they can see that um, Christ is the hope of the world and not just something that we're bringing um, and trying to impose on them. Um, so it's well worth reading. The Ecclesiastical History uh, of the English People There's a great Penguin edition if anybody wants to uh, pick it up. at um, you know, Barnes & Noble or any library anywhere. Very readable. Yeah?
0: Um, so you mentioned that there must be dating barbarians converted first to Arianism. Was mm-hmm. there, there some powerful center of Arianism, Or was this just a grassroots movement that like people were sneaking around and
1: teaching these barbarians. This, this comes out of the 4th century when um, Arian versus Catholic Christianity was um, back and forth, and um, Arian emperors were sending out Arian missionaries. Um, so there's one in particular named um Ufila who um, is a missionary to the gods, and he is the first person to translate the, the Bible into Gothic, um, and he um, his missionary efforts were very successful. So he can converted most of the gods, and the gods, um, in turn, converted many of these other incoming tribes. So there's a period where many of these tribes accepted an Arian version of Christianity and then uh, moved into Catholic Roman lands um, in the 5th and 6th century after the Arian question had been decided within Roman borders. And this contributes to all kinds of interesting dynamics between conquerors and conquered um, Religious differences that we don't really need to get in here. But that's where it comes from. this 4th century missionary endeavor. um, I would like to take maybe just a couple of minutes. Um, through your questionings, you guys have uh, kind of drawn out a little bit of what I wanted to say about my own personal journey, but um, uh, we've been asked by the session um, to give just a couple of minutes uh, at the end of this class about um, what, um, for, for Juniors and for me, what uh, this plan of study has meant to us personally. Um, and so for me, I come out of a tradition that's looks has looked at the study of church history um, somewhat suspiciously. Uh, I grew up in a, a Baptist church where there was not a you know it wasn't it wouldn't be said from the pulpit that church history in between about 100 and nineteen hundred was less than edifying, but that was kind of the sense um, that you if you're going to study the church history, you want to study the New Testament and then you want to study maybe a little bit of Luther, um, and then get on back into, you know, sort of 19th century uh, iterations of uh, uh, Baptist theology in America. And so there, there was some real suspicion about these periods, particularly about the periods that we would call Catholic. And so I got into, I've, I've loved history for as long as I can remember, but I got into church history um, relatively late um, in my undergraduate career. and when i I got there, um, I you know I read a, a church history book that I got at a conference um, summer before my senior year, and I was hooked from there there was there was no going back, and so I had to go back to school and start taking these classes, even though I was being warned um, by some of my um, you know fellow Christians that depending on which teacher um, you're getting at ucla this is going to be a real challenge and in fact, um, some of those warnings were true they're not all um, made up. Um, Some professors are out there who... It's rarely the ones that have no belief. They're very much willing to inhabit the worldviews of um, past peoples and try and present them fairly. It's often people who have deep theological commitments but problems with um, Christian Orthodoxy as a whole. And I've encountered those both at UCLA and at um, the other school where they're trying to say Christianity is not what you thought it was, and here are the reasons why, and let me give you an alternative story." And for me that was was very difficult, particularly the first couple of classes that I took with that, but um, I've had strong Christian communities, um, both in college and then here at Christ Presbyterian who have come alongside me and supported me, pastoral staff who've been willing to to listen to those kinds of questions that I get, um, that I've been coming up with in these past few years. And for me, this process has made my Christian faith stronger. It's, in a tangible way, it's taken away a fear, a fear that I had while I was growing up, which was that if I did sit in one of those classes and I listened to those objections to Christian faith, coming from outside of it, you know, not coming from someone who's a true believer, because that person might even unconsciously, change the circumstances and change some of the presentation to make it easier for me to accept. Someone who really thinks that this is wrong, a very intelligent person who studied it for a very long time, and I can listen to those arguments and I can look at them and say, no, here are my criticisms of where you're coming from. Um, I think Oliver's left already, but um, some of those things, you know, these, these, um, these very deep questions about what it means to study history in the first place are being challenged for me, and I can come through that experience and say, no, where I'm, where I'm coming from means that I have um, a, a worldview to fall back on, and a community, and a, a way of interpreting these the things that I'm learning that is both faithful to the data as a whole, as it's being presented to me, and is faithful to the interpretation of that data within um, the, the context of Christian orthodoxy. For me to be able to fall back on that foundation now um, makes me a, a stronger Christian than I was before I started studying this. And so, I encourage you, I really do believe that all truth is God's truth. And it is um, it is good to read books that are written from the perspective of orthodoxy, um, but don't be afraid of the ones that aren't. Um, make sure that... One other thing to be, to be aware of, though, is that arguments have weight, even though they don't necessarily have... Truth behind them, and if you, if all you read for years at a time is things that are attacking the way that you, the way that you want, the things that you hold dear, it, it's going to be emotionally very difficult, and even intellectually, you start to realize that um, some of the things, the the the, the true ways of um, understanding your faith are, are being sort of submerged under the weight of other things. But if you always stick to to people that you know are going to be safe. Um, that fear might start to grow in your mind that, well, if I just took these other arguments on their own terms, well, what would that do? What would happen if if I found something I couldn't refute? And so, what I can say is that this far down the road, um, I haven't found irrefutable arguments coming from outside. Uh, I've found challenging ones, and I'm not the same believer that I was on every point um, when I was 18, but um, that's been my journey so far, and I want to thank all of you here in this room, um, both friends and pastoral staff and everyone at this church who've uh, come alongside me in that um, journey and continue to support me in it, and have given me the opportunity now to be in teaching. Both I'm teaching both at Yale now in a, um, in a secular context and then to teach here, and to really to be open about what, what are my theological and philosophical commitments that inform the way I do history. And of course, it's been a learning experience for me. Um I didn't come into this course with just simply things to say to you guys, but you guys have been um, asking me challenging questions and um, guiding me in a way that has helped me um, formulate more co- more coherently how my faith informs um, my my study because I'm able to to bring talk about the two in a very open and very integrated way here. so, um, the last thing I'd like to say while I'm up here is thank you to all of you. Um, it's been a wonderful semester. Um, I hope to be able to do this kind of thing in the future. Thanks very much. Um, uh, President, would you mind um, closing this session in uh, we, we deal with the, the spirit of
0: love and as we've been able to study your history, ultimately, your history of your church, and we just thank you so much for these servants who have given of their passion, of their work ethic, uh, as it's brought them through graduate schools, into the careers that they have, and we, uh, Lord, it just feels really good uh, that we can come alongside uh, of them and their journey, encouraging them and strengthening them and blessing them, even as they have blessed us. And we just give you praise and thanksgiving, Lord, and we would be remiss if we did not remember the saints that have gone before us. Uh, we thank you for them, those that we fellowship with even now, uh, in the epicenter of heaven itself that we all belong. So, Lord, we thank you for those that have come before us, their arguments, their case, their suffering, uh, their grappling. And we pray, God, that you would make us worthy recipients of their legacy, a legacy of faith. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.